0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Mandel. Morning, church. Good to see you all. Glad that you're with us today. We will be in Psalm 133, if you want to flip there in your Bible. Um, This fall, we are taking a look at uh, the six biblical practices that form our vision for what it looks like to follow Jesus together in real life. And um, each of these practices has to do with looking at one of the key relationships in our lives and asking what would it look like to see that relationship restored to a place of health and maturity and righteousness um, for the sake of God's glory and mutual joy. And so uh, we've talked about our relationship with God and our relationship with ourself so far. And this week, the relationship we're going to focus on is the relationship that each of us has with the church. Or in other words, um, the, what kind of relationships does God want us to have with one another? as members of Christ's church. And so um, our one-word answer to that question, what kind of relationships, would be the word community. And um, we believe that by giving ourselves to the practice of community, we're living in tune with the heart of Jesus. And we're creating space for the Spirit of God uh, to form us into the people that he's created and redeemed us to be. So um, here's our description using kind of Antioch vision language of what we mean when we say community. What does reconciliation with the church look like? It looks like knowing, loving, and serving one another through the practice of community. It's the daily choice of commitment over convenience, learning to share life as a family. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about community. Throughout the series, Knowing, Loving, Serving, we're using the Head, Heart, Hands framework to try to get a holistic understanding of what's involved in living out each one of these practices. And so living in community with the people of God as part of the church means being committed to knowing, loving, and serving each other well in the ways that Christ has called us to. And this morning we're going to be using Psalm 133 to shape our imagination of what Christian community is all about. So, first, what does this psalm teach us about knowing one another? Verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. So here's what you need to know about Psalm 133. This is one of the Psalms of ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are the 15 psalms from Psalm 120 to 134. And these were the songs that the Hebrew people would sing as they were on their pilgrimage up to the temple in Jerusalem. About three times a year, they would make this journey together to come and to worship, and they would be heading up the hill together, ascending the hill, and so they would sing these 15 psalms of ascent together. And the focus of this psalm, this short one in 133, the focus is their togetherness. They've been traveling together. They're preparing to worship together. They'll leave and go back home together. The idea is that they're in this together. And I love that the author David here uses an analogy from music. He says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Unity could also be translated or understood as harmony. It's the idea of different notes on a piano or a guitar or a harp or whatever they had, that the notes are distinct from one another, but when they're combined skillfully, they create a chord, a harmony, a sound that he says is both good and pleasant. And so the picture is that as members of God's family, we are different notes, but when we play together, when we come together, it creates something beautiful that's good and pleasant. Now, it's interesting to me that he pairs those two words, good and pleasant, because the truth is there's lots of things in life that are good, but they aren't that pleasant. And there's lots of things in life that are pleasant, but they aren't that good. So maybe you can help me. What are some examples? What's something in life that's good for you, but not very enjoyable? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Exercise. Exercise. Good. Okay. Now, what's something that's really enjoyable but maybe not good for you? Beer. Beer. Okay. Um, now, what's something that's both enjoyable and good for you? Beer. Beer. <laughs> Exercise. Exercise. Okay, so maybe there's some conflicting opinions here. I was hoping we would get a compelling metaphor out of this, but that made it more confusing. The point is that when God's people live together in community, He says that's something that's both good and enjoyable. That it's something that is pleasurable, that brings us life and brings us joy. Um, and it's also in tune with who God is and the way that he's made us to live. Um, now, what's interesting is he doesn't say how good and pleasant it is when God's people worship together in unity. Or when God's people go to church together in unity. Or when God's people attend a Bible study together in unity. He says how good and pleasant when God's people live or dwell together in unity. And so this is why we use the language of sharing life together when we talk about community. We're not talking about something that happens once a week. We're not talking about just showing up for an hour and a half and saying we are in community. We're talking about something much bigger and more pervasive than that. That is the goal and the biblical vision of community within the church that we would live together, share life together in such a way that it's not my life and your life, but it's our life. And it's not just what is God doing in me or what is God doing in you, but what is God doing in us? Um, Which we can be honest and say that is just so countercultural and counterintuitive, especially for us as individualistic Westerners. We naturally think of life in terms, in me terms, rather than we terms. But that's not actually how the Bible sees this. And so, there's so much I could say about it, but I just want to focus on one aspect. One of the reasons that I think we uh, miss this has to do with the limitations of the English language. So, in English, we don't have a second person plural pronoun, Meaning, we use the word you whether we're addressing an individual or whether we're addressing a group. We have the same word, you. And so I can say, I'm talking to you, meaning one person, or I'm talking to you, meaning a hundred people. And so you have to pay attention to body language or context to try to figure out when the speaker is addressing an individual versus when the speaker's. Addressing a group. Now, most of the time it's not that big of a deal, but here's where it is a big deal when it comes to our reading and interpreting of the Bible. Because in Koine Greek, which is the language the New Testament is written in, they do have a second person plural pronoun. So I'll teach you a little bit of Greek, uh, these two words, sue in the Greek, is translated for us as you, but it's specifically singular when I'm speaking to one person. And this other word, humis, is you, but plural, okay? And so when the biblical authors are speaking to one person, they say sue, and when they're addressing multiple people, they say humis. But in English, we just say you. And what happens is that in English readers of the Bible, we don't realize just how often portions of the scripture are addressed to groups or communities of people rather than to individuals. Now, there is one group of English speakers that has a second person plural pronoun. That's folks from the South, right? Anybody from the South? A couple of y'all. Okay. Okay. You get to say, y'all. We don't really get to say that around here. It doesn't go so well. Um, But I did find a really great tool this week that I'd love to share with you. It's called the Y'all Bible. Um, And you can go to y'allbible.com. And this is so great. It's an online Bible that translates humis as y'all. And so the result is that we get an English reading that is more is more closely uh, aligned with the original text and it's fun to read it just kind of makes you sound like a NASCAR fan but it's actually a better reading Um, of the Bible, and it really makes a difference. So here's one example, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, I'll read it for you in the English Standard Version. Paul says, do you not know that you are a temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? It's a familiar passage to many of us. So the question is, who is the you in this verse? Am I personally the temple of God because God's Spirit dwells in me? Uh, I remember when I got my first tattoo when I turned 18 and uh, a grumpy old deacon in the church took one look at it and kind of mumbled, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And um, I don't remember how I responded at the time, but what I should have said is, have you ever seen a temple? They're covered in art. (laughs) I'm not desecrating the temple, I'm decorating the temple. That was (laughs) God's idea. But the truth is, neither of us actually understood what Paul was talking about in this verse because Paul isn't speaking to individuals, he's speaking to a community. So look at the same verse in the y'all version. Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? That changes things, doesn't it? He's not saying that I personally am God's temple, although there may be some truth to that. The point that he's making is that we, together, collectively, as the church, we are the temple of God and that God's spirit dwells in us. Another fun feature in the all version is that you can select various regional dialects. And so here it is in the western U.S. version. Do you guys know, not know, that you guys are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you guys? So this isn't a verse about taking care of your body or not getting tattoos or whatever. Paul is writing to a church in the city of Corinth where they're fighting and taking sides and people are leaving and there's division in the church. He's going, don't you all realize... That when you divide, when there's division in the church, you are opposing the oneness of God's spirit amongst you. You guys are the temple of God. So start acting like it. Christianity is a team sport. It always has been. It's never been designed, it was never designed to be something that we attempt on our own. Another way of putting this is that no Christian is an only child. That when we come into the kingdom by grace through faith, we become members of a family. And we become connected to one another in a way <clears throat> that we never thought was possible. My guy Eugene Peterson says it like this there's nobody who doesn't have problems with the church because there's sin in the church. But there's no other place to be a Christian. And so the first part of a reconciled relationship within the church is coming to know ourselves and know one another in we terms and not just in me terms. And understand collectively the identity and the relationship that we've been given with God and with one another. Move on to the idea of loving one another. David uses two poetic images in the next two verses of Psalm 133 to describe what life in the community of God is to look like. In verse 2, he said, It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe, which is just such like a relatable real-life metaphor. You know when you have like oil <laughs> dripping down your beard? It just, it's so clear. It's just like that. <laughs> the picture here is from Exodus 29, and it's God giving his instructions for how Aaron and the other priests would be ordained. And the idea is that oil would be poured on Aaron's head, but it didn't stop there, that the oil would drip down his face, down his beard, down his clothes. The idea is that when God anoints his people, he sets them apart. The whole person is sanctified, his whole body and all of its parts. And so David here in this psalm is saying that when God's people live together in unity, not only is it good and pleasant, but it's this idea that Christ's whole body receives the anointing of God's presence. So oil as a symbol of the presence of God, a sign of the spirit of God, anointing oil as a priest. So when I see somebody with oil dripping down their head or their beard or their robe, I know that that is a priest. Or in other words, I know that I'm looking into the eyes of somebody who's been anointed by God. Later on, this theme of priesthood would be expanded by the authors of the New Testament. And they would go on to say that it's not just a select few of God's people that would serve as priests, but that in the family of God, we are a nation of priests, a royal priesthood, meaning every single person that we find ourselves related to in Christ, their, the whole body of Jesus has now been anointed, sanctified, sanctified, And commissioned to be priests. So, how would a community of priests relate to one another? What would be the nature of their relationships? How would they see each other, treat one another, speak to one another, speak about one another? Well, that's really the picture that all throughout the scriptures and specifically the New Testament writers give us in this one short phrase, love one another. Depending on how you count, there's up to 59 specific commandments in the New Testament that have to do with the way we ought to relate and treat one another. Let me read a few of them. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Build one another up. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Speak the truth in love to one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Submit to one another. Consider one another better than yourselves. Look to the interests of one another. Bear with one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Show hospitality to one another. We could go on and on. This is a central theme of the New Testament. This is central what it, to what it means to be the people of God, being those who are committed To learning how to love each other well. There's all kinds of reasons people go to church. But rarely do we think, I'm going to go to church so that I can learn how to love others well. But if you think about it, church is perfectly designed for that. The church is the classroom in which Jesus wants to teach us as his students how to love one another. And of course we understand that if we're going to learn how to be patient with one another and we're going to learn how to forgive one another, then the assumption is that we're going to be sharing life closely enough to hurt each other, to sin against each other, or at the very least to annoy each other church is the perfect classroom for us to learn how to live the love of Jesus, which is why we always say at Antioch, we don't have true community until there's someone there who you wish wasn't. Until then, we're just a clique. So when we say we love one another... We don't mean just that we feel warm, fuzzy thoughts towards one another. We say that we, we mean that we are actively committing to learning how to love one another in the way of Jesus. And we therefore receive conflict and awkwardness and misunderstanding and various differing viewpoints on things as opportunities to learn how to live together as the people of God. Now, if I'm honest, Antioch, we are um, in a season right now where I think we are relearning how to be a community. Um, After the last couple of years, right, COVID and moving online, a lot of turnover. There's a lot of people that have left our church, a lot of new people that have joined We were all wearing these really cool masks every time we hang out. Um, We can be honest and say we aren't yet experiencing the level of community that we would like to as a church. I know many of us feel disconnected, feel isolated, feel unknown, maybe even unwelcomed or unloved. And that's not okay. But it is okay to acknowledge that and to say where we are isn't where we want to be. And it's going to take some time, but it also is going to take some effort and take some commitment. And so my encouragement to you is to see your place in this church as an opportunity to learn how to love one another well. Next, let's talk about the idea of serving each other. Move on to the next metaphor that David uses. It is as if the dew, verse 3, of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Okay, so the second image of community is that it's like the dew from Mount Hermon flowing down the slopes of Zion. Anybody ever been to Mount Hermon in California? That's not the one. We're talking about the one in Syria. Uh, Mount Hermon is the tallest peak in that part of the world, 9,200 feet above sea level. And it was crazy because I knew Mount Hermon from the Bible. And when I flew into Israel for the first time, I saw a huge billboard that advertised snowboarding on Mount Hermon. And it kind of just messes with your paradigm of uh, biblical imagery. But at that altitude, um, the dew is thick every morning. And the, the picture is that the moisture, the dew, the condensation flows down Mount Hermon all the way, he says, to Zion. Now, Zion is the mountain in Jerusalem, and it's only 2,500 feet tall, and it's 100 miles away from Mount Hermon, so essentially from Mount Hood to here. And so David's saying, the beauty, the preciousness of Christian community It's this idea that even the moisture, the precipitation that hits Mount Hood, it flows all the way to the high desert. So the picture, if you can see it, is that in the community of Christ, high and low drink the same sweet wine. Meaning there's... A very interesting dynamic where when we go out into the world, we think of the haves and the have-nots. We think of the successful people and the the failures of people. We think of those who are respected and those who are rejected. And God's going, in my family, that's not how it works, Whether you're rich or poor or high or low in society standards, it doesn't matter here. We celebrate with those who celebrate and we mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we hurt with those who hurt. We win with those who win and we lose with those who lose. So he's saying not only do we belong together, we actually belong together to one another. So we get to celebrate when we see God moving in the life of his people in a significant way, even if we feel a little bit distant or removed from that. He's saying it's not just you and me, but it's us. And at the same time, it works the other way. When there has been sin, when there has been a failure on the part of God's people, even if I personally don't feel that connected or guilty of it, if it's not me, but it's we, then there's an invitation to assume responsibility for sins which I personally may not be guilty. So we start to get into some touchy stuff here. Because I've noticed over the last couple years that a lot of Christians have a really hard time grasping the idea of corporate sin. That our paradigm for sin and salvation, we think of strictly in individualistic terms but the Bible would confront that. God deals with communities of people all throughout the Bible. Think about it. All the way, starting with Adam and Eve and then Abraham and then the nation of Israel and the language of the prophets, it's in plural language almost all the time. And think about the harsh words that the prophets would have for Israel. Israel, you have turned your back on me. You've stepped out on me like an adulterous wife. Israel, you have abandoned your first love. And God's speaking to probably millions of people. And there's probably the one Hebrew, let's call him Todd, who's going, what about me? Not me. I still love you, God. And God's going, no, you're missing it. I'm not saying individuals, I'm saying as a nation. And then that same paradigm becomes the reality through which God deals with his church. Yes, he knows and loves and relates to us as individuals, but not just as individuals, also as part of a family. Every week when we worship together, our worship leaders lead us in a prayer of confession. And if you're paying attention, you'll notice that it's in plural language. We confess our sins. Not just the things that I personally have done, but that we, as the corporate or even the global or even the historic body of Christ, are responsible for And do you know why it's such an amazing gift, this gift of confession? Because there's so much sin that has occurred at the hands of God's people that it can be incredibly paralyzing and overwhelming at times. And I don't always know what to do or how to fix it. But the first invitation is to confess and to lament and to acknowledge that we are part of a family that at times has horribly misrepresented Jesus and has done things in his name that he would never do. I'm going to invite Rick Gerhart, also known as Raptor Rick, Ranger Rick, (laughs) Gerhawk, He's the chairman of our elder team, and uh, he's going to read a letter for us (coughs) that he and I wrote together, and it's an opportunity for us this morning to hopefully practice some of what we're preaching. Um, If you've been around for the last year or so, our elders um, have been engaged in a process In conversation with the entire congregation and specifically with uh, some of the other women in leadership in our church. And long story short, throughout very careful study of the scriptures, long, hard conversations, good discussion, um, several months ago, we came to a place um, collectively where we had to acknowledge that our previous position on the issue of church leadership, um, we came to see it as wrong. And specifically, having to do with the office of elder, those that are entrusted with the care and leadership of the church. Our previous position for the last 15 years at Antioch has been that that office was reserved exclusively for men. And we came through careful study of scripture to a place where we acknowledge and celebrate the fact that Christ both gifts and calls men and women alike to serve the church in mutual leadership. And so we have changed our position and our policy, and if you're not caught up on that, we have plenty of resources and things that we can help you with. But there's one other thing that we've been meaning to do and know that we've needed to do. And that is, to express our apology and our lament, recognizing our complicity and responsibility for dealing with the places we've got it wrong. And so Rick is gonna read for us the letter that we've written.
1: So this is signed uh, on behalf of the current Antioch elders uh, by Pete Kelly, lead pastor, and myself, elder chair. Dear church family, the Antioch elders, with the blessing and affirmation of the congregation at large, recently changed our position and policy with regard to women in church leadership. Specifically, while we previously understood the role of elder to be reserved for men only, based primarily on our interpretation of 1 Timothy 3:1 through 7 and Titus 1:5 through 9, we now understand these passages and the rest of the New Testament witness to encourage the inclusion of women in this role. For those in our congregation who may still have questions about this change of position, we would enjoy the chance to sit down over a cup of coffee or to share resources to help you better understand our process. While we are firmly convicted regarding our new position, we acknowledge that this is a doctrinal issue in which faithful Christians throughout history, around the world, and within our own congregation have arrived at different conclusions. In addition to changing our position and policy on women in church leadership, there is another step we are convicted to take. This is not only a biblical issue, it's also a justice issue. And for our sisters in Christ, it's an issue that impacts their sense of identity, calling, and belonging in the church. If our previous position involved a misunderstanding of Christ's will for his church, then that position represents an injustice in which we have been complicit. So, how how are we to respond when convicted of our complicity in an unjust system? Where there has been injustice, we must address it with consideration of both the past and the future. As we look to the future, we acknowledge that change is necessary to ensure that justice is done going forward. In this case, we look forward to implementing our new position of policy in hope of creating a more just leadership model and bringing an end to the unjust conditions under which we previously operated. Starting today, we will be accepting nominations for new elders with the expectation that some of the many faithful sisters in Christ who have already been such an important part of Antioch will now be empowered to use their gifts even more fully in service as elders. We are excited about the future as we seek to follow the Lord together, and we are eager to see how the long-overdue inclusion of women into the role of eldership will enrich and enhance our mission as a church. In addition to looking forward, we must also look back to lament and repent that we misunderstood and misrepresented Christ's heart on this matter. We, the current male elders, now recognize that we are responsible for the injustices inflicted upon our sisters in Christ by our previous position. We know that if our former position was at odds with Christ's will for his church, that our entire congregation has been negatively impacted in one way or another. But those most directly due an apology are the women and girls in our congregation who have been misled by church leaders held back by patriarchal policies, denied opportunities to use their God-given talents and personalities, and made at times to feel as though they were second-class citizens in Christ church. We don't pretend to understand all the ways in which our past policy has hurt our sisters, and we look forward to growing in our understanding alongside the female elders with whom we will soon be serving. As for now, we are publicly confessing our wrongdoing in this matter apologizing and repenting to all those who have been hurt by what we now take to be an unbiblical stance. We are asking for forgiveness from Christ and from all who have been hurt by the position we previously held. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. At Antioch, we understand and teach the reconciliation of all things as a summation of the gospel of Jesus. We have committed ourselves to pursue pursuing racial reconciliation, reconciliation with creation, and reconciliation in other relationships. But for far too long, we have neglected the need to pursue reconciliation between men and women in the family of God, which we now see is a central theme of Jesus's ministry and of Paul's writings. We trust that adopting this new position is a huge step toward the needed reconciliation in this relationship. We offer this public lament and apology with the hope that it too will lead to the reconciliation the Lord desires for unity of his church and the glory of his name.
0: If you want a copy of that letter, they're going to be available after the service. They'll be on a table out in the hallway and you can grab one as you go. Uh, If you have questions um, about the process or specifically about what it looks like moving forward as we nominate uh, new elders, we're going to dive into that conversation once again at the family meeting uh, next Sunday night. And so join us for that. Um, But for us, once again, um, this represents an opportunity for us to think in terms of we and not just me. And um, sometimes that means confessing, apologizing, and taking responsibility for the places we've gotten it wrong. So We truly are sorry. Um, let me close with a couple uh, bullet points of application before we come to the table. When it comes to serving the church um, in a very practical sense, What does this look like? First, I would say it like this. Come to church like it's your job. Uh, If I had to guess, I'd say the average Antiocher gathers with us once or twice a month on Sundays. And I understand the uh, competition that we face with uh, the great outdoors around here. Um, But I would really encourage you, if our commitment to one another isn't just about convenience then it looks like being committed to the gathering together in the name of Jesus, whether we feel like it or not. Uh, Number two, I'd say pursue Christ-centered friendships. If that looks like joining a community group or a formation group, then do that. If it looks like being intentional about the relationships God's already given you with other believers, then do that. But we're not meant to go at it alone. And so find those relationships and invest in them um, that are going to be mutually encouraging when it comes to your faith in Jesus. Uh, Thirdly, find a place to serve. When we show up here on Sundays or other things throughout the week, we are not the customers coming to be served, but we are followers of Jesus here to serve. And so I love all the different ways that I get to see the congregation serving here every week, from playing music to serving in Antioch kids to setting up and tearing down, making coffee, hospitality, greeting youth leaders throughout the week, all the stuff. Find a way to serve, Um, and especially if you're feeling disconnected or unknown, it's a great way to get involved. Uh, Next, give regularly, sacrificially, and joyfully. We're invested in this thing together with our time, but also with our treasure. And so um, if you consider Antioch your church and you don't regularly give, I want to really encourage you to think about starting. Um, If you do regularly give, I want to encourage you to think about giving more. Um, And if you give and you're grumpy about it, I want to encourage you to give and be joyful about it because God (laughs) loves a cheerful giver. Finally... Serving one another, being committed to the community means leaving well. Um, If God allows, I plan on uh, spending the next 30 years at this church. Anything could happen. That's my plan. That may not necessarily be yours. Um, There will come a time when many of you, for whatever reason, will face this decision. And here's what I want to say. Take it seriously and do it well. Um, I've been inspired by some of the folks that have joined Antioch over the last couple years and have been able to tell the story of leaving their last church well. We processed it and prayed about it with our community group. We sat down with our pastors and our elders and we explained why we felt it was best for our family to move on. Those are hard conversations, but they are so necessary for the health of the greater family of God. And so if the time comes where you need to leave Antioch for whatever reason, please do it well. Or just stay, and we can avoid that altogether. So um, Sean's going to come and lead us to the table. We're going to share a meal together, which is part of being a family. And uh, I just want to express how much I'm grateful for you guys and the opportunity to be in community with you, not just as your pastor, but also as your brother. Uh, I, I couldn't do it without you. So, um, Sean will come. I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we are grateful for the life that you've given us together as your body, as members of your family. Um, We acknowledge that there are so many places where we've gotten it wrong and where we struggle and where we've failed. But we thank you that you are gracious and that you are faithful and that you who started this good work in us are going to carry it on to completion. Thank you for making us a temple where your spirit dwells. And we pray that you would use this place and these people to teach us how to love as we've been loved.